This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, from fake news to conspiracy theories, using logic to safely navigate the information landscape. If you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction. The information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, I am joined by Dr. Lydie Klotz, who studies how we transform things from how they are to how we want them to be. His research on the science of design has appeared in both nature and science, and he has written for the Washington Post, Fast Company, Lit Hub, The Globe and Mail, and The Behavioral Scientist. Lydie's work applies whenever we are designing and problem solving. Whether for climate change, art, parenting, or personal finance, the range of implications of Lydie's research have been highlighted in outlets including the Wall Street Journal, Grist, the Boston Globe, and national newspapers on five continents. A professor at the University of Virginia, Lydie, he has authored more than 80 original research articles and secured more than $10 million in competitive funding to support his and others' work in this area. Recognized nationally as a professor who inspires, Lydie has taught thousands of students, including 21 PhD advisees, whose designing and teaching shapes the world. Uh, before he was a professor, he designed schools in New Jersey, and then before that, he was actually a professional soccer player. Today, I have him on the podcast, and we are going to be discussing his most recent book, Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. That being said, Lydie, thank you uh, for joining us and welcome. Thanks, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very happy to have you. And again, excited to dig into this because I did get a chance to go through your book and I loved it, uh, particularly as somebody who is a fan of critical thinking and in particular heuristics and cognitive biases, biases and things of that nature. Uh, I found it fascinating. But before we dig into the book, I want to kind of hear your backstory. I'm curious as to where it all began for you as far as your genesis, the origins of your interest in science as well as engineering. Yeah, um, so my dad is a professor or a retired professor um, and he taught botany um, for, for a long time. I you know, this wasn't a situation where they were saying, oh, you have to be a professor. But um, I, in fact, I didn't even know that graduate school was free until about um, three years after I had graduated from undergrad, because I went to a small undergrad school that didn't have graduate programs. So it wasn't like I was in this pipeline to become a professor. Um, but at the same time, I did have parents who, my dad was a professor and my mom, you know, incredibly smart, uh, one of the first people to kind of study computer science, um, with instilled in me this love for learning and love for science and, uh, you, know, you know, just curiosity with the world. Uh, so that's, that's definitely where it started. Um, and then, I mean, I have to, it wasn't a, a direct line because for most of my young life, I was focused on playing soccer. You mentioned I was a professional soccer player and I made like $2,000 a month for two years after college, which, um, basically <laughs> like being a grad assistant, but it was, I mean, it was, it was awesome. I got to, uh, I got to travel around and, and see all these places and push myself to get really good at something. Uh, so some transferable lessons there, but um, you know, all of the time kind of leading up to that, I was very focused on, on soccer as kind of my main pursuit. Um, and, you know, I, I went to Lafayette college in Pennsylvania, which allowed me to do engineering um, but the main reason I went is because I could play soccer. I could start as a freshman on a division one team. Uh, and um, anyway, so, so 
then when I was done playing soccer, that's when I started thinking about, okay, what are the things I'm going to have to work for the rest of my life? What are the things that I actually like doing? How can I make a meaningful contribution to the world? And that's where I started to circle back to the, um, some of the training that I had and also, you know, some of the training that I would go on to get. So with your undergraduate, then did you go in as, uh, into engineering then? Yeah. So the whole thing with engineering, and I joke about this with my students all the time, is that, uh, you know, you have to start in engineering. And so I I was undecided on engineering going in and everybody said, well, if you want to do engineering, you got to start in it. And it's easier. You you can always switch out. But if you're two years into school and you decide you want to be an engineer, you can't really switch in. So I said, "Okay, I'll. I'll start in it. <laughs> and then every, every couple of years I'd say, Oh, do I want to switch out? Because I mean, I love engineering. I love the problem solving mindset. I love this, you know, to me, the fundamental thing about engineering is applying science to solve human problems, which is amazing. I love doing that part of it, but I don't, you know, I majored in civil engineering. I, I didn't, I don't want to be, and I've, you know, I'm not best serving society if I'm sitting behind a desk doing calculations that wasn't the part of engineering that appealed to me um so so yeah i started out in engineering and just kind of never left and i've always been working kind of at these intersections of of engineering and other fields i mean i was initially and still am really interested in sustainability so how engineering can contribute to you know climate change but also some of these social challenges that are part of sustainability um equity and, and and uh you know, systemic racism and things like that. Uh, And then so kind of the intersection of engineering and how it overlaps with those things. And then also um, in terms of disciplines and science, you know, behavioral science, how are we pulling that into engineering? And we've, we've long kind of done that in a, in an ad hoc way. So bring in behavioral science as you need it. So kind of human factors engineering, right? Where, Hey, there's this, person and we, you know, we've got to design the chair for them to fit in the airplane and you kind of, okay, what do we know about humans, but also applying engineering or behavioral science in a much more systematic way to engineering is what I'm interested in uh, too, that kind of spans across engineering and other disciplines. So I I just started out in engineering and have never left. It's been an amazing, amazing uh, uh, um, foundation for critical thinking and problem solving. And it's, but it's also like, I don't, um, I don't fit the mold of like the traditional engineer probably. Yeah, you definitely don't. Cause I was reading through your background and I think what I like most about kind of what you do as an engineer is your interdisciplinary research. I, I found mm-hmm. it absolutely fascinating how you reach across all of these different areas. And um it's wonderful that you have found yourself in an institution that allows you to do that as well. And that people are willing to work with you. Cause I think that uh, as somebody, I absolutely love science and I've been in science for a number of years. I think some of the biggest breakthroughs this particular century, century is actually going to come through interdisciplinary research where looking in these different areas of the spaces in between subjects, if you will, and kind of, exploring those, uh, exploring those areas and finding new knowledge there. Yeah. And I've been lucky. I mean, I'm at university of Virginia now, and I was at Clemson for the first eight years of my career. And at both places, you know, both the informal structures, you know, just supportive department chairs, for example, and, and, you know, the, the other professors who are evaluating me for promotion have always been hey, that's cool if he wants to go explore those things as long as he's writing journal articles and getting research funding. Um, so both the informal structures and then more and more the, the formal structures are, are trying to support that. And I agree that it's really, really important. And it's, it's not something, um, whether or not it happens is, a very, is very much a systemic thing, right? You can say, oh, all you need to do is get some brilliant scientist who wants to do interdisciplinary stuff. And I don't, think that's the case, right? It's much more about, okay, what is this system that all of the scientists and researchers are part of? And does the system allow for these people who work really hard at this? Does it allow for them to kind of work across disciplines and does it, does it support them? So certainly, you know, we're not one, 100% there in terms of facilitating perfect interdisciplinary research, but I've, I've found it very supportive over the, the course of my career. Yeah, I think that's wonderful again. And I'm hoping that as you know, as the century progresses, as time moves on, that 
the system, the academic system in general, will encourage more uh, of the interdisciplinary research. And you know, everything comes down to money. So just making sure that the funding is available and that the funding organizations are willing to fund this research because it's just so important. And I'm- Yeah, and the I'm national, just, uh, I'm sorry, I was gonna just, like the funding organizations ahead, yeah. is one that's shifted a, a lot recently. And so like the National Science Foundation has an increasing number of awards that require engineering and social science to be seriously merged together. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. That kind of thing. Um, is is incredibly important. Another uh, point there is just like if you look at the historic context of science, it's it's almost like a recent intervention or invention these disciplines, right? Because we invented them to be able to organize knowledge and to be able to go deep into things. And um, I forget. Uh, oh yeah, it was um, Steve Levitt. I, I was I was talking to him, and after the conversation, he was like, "You he works at the intersection of psych or behavioral science and engineering." It's like who even knew those two things intersected? And then one of my favorite quotes that's in the book is from Emerson, where he talks about he's basically saying, "Look at the stuff around us." Um, he says it much more eloquently. It's something like, "Observe the the shapes of timber, stone, and how it's all." determined by the ideas that are in the minds of many or something like that. So there's Emerson, like, the, well, I guess he's a philosopher, right? And he's talking about how, basically about how our ideas shape the things that are around us and the things that are around us shape our ideas. So anyway, yeah, I think um, the academy needs to, or not needs to, but um, is considering how to facilitate this interdisciplinary work. Because in a lot of cases, these disciplinary boundaries that we, in all cases that we put them up as kind of convenient organizing structures, and they're just that. It's not like the problems stop where the discipline ends, right? So. No, absolutely. Like you said, they're just convenient labels. Uh, right. And it just helps us to organize things and compartmentalize them. But they are more or less just subjective boundaries and they can right. be amorphous and you can move between them and all of that. So you don't, you don't need to be stuck in one particular discipline <laughs> your yeah. entire research career. But so were you always kind of interested in a wide variety of things and just kind of wanting to merge these ideas together, would you say, or is that something that kind of developed over the years as you studied more uh, in school? Yeah, I would say I've always been interested in a wide variety of things. It certainly wasn't the case though, when I was like 15 or even 25, where I said, oh, I definitely want to merge these two things, like if it's behavioral science and engineering or whatever. Um, it's just much more than a kind of problem focused thing. It's like, oh, you know, if I'm, I'm looking at sustainability, for example, I mentioned being interested in that. And, you know, as I got interested in sustainability and merging that with my research in civil engineering, I or my background in civil engineering, I started looking into, oh, well, how does the built environment contribute to sustainability? And you learn cars and or buildings use more energy than cars and airplanes combined. And it's like, oh, cool. Well, that's a, a leverage point for climate change then. And then you see that well, we know how to create net zero energy buildings. We know how to create infrastructure that, you know, has requires less driving around. Um, and yet we're not doing it. And so some of the barriers there are less the specific technologies and more, you know, how are people using these things? Um, so that's, I mean, I use that as an example of, you know, kind of starting with the problem and then trying to explore the problem and figure out, okay, what are the scientific things that are contributing here? Um, and then there's a huge amount of uh, reality check and humility required too, right? Where it's like, well, of course, people have spent their whole careers understanding behavioral science, and um, you know. So, how do I plug into that in a in a productive way, realizing that I'm never going to catch up with them, but also realizing that, it, like, if we draw on this research, even at the you know kind of the basic PhD level understanding or even undergraduate level understanding, how can that help in engineering? Yeah, and I think that that's what's so wonderful about interdisciplinary research is like you just said, okay, you may not be able to build on the volumes of behavioral science research that have already been done in the traditional route. However, mm -hmm. you know, if you come, in come into it with that interdisciplinary uh, approach from engineering and then merging the two, there's new knowledge there. And that's something that you can definitely contribute to. Yeah, and like the, the paper that's the basis of the, the book, not the basis, but the paper that kind of 
is chapter one in the book um, that was it got published on, in nature and made the cover and you know this is not something that happens to me frequently or ever before <laughs> or any ever. scientist <laughs> yeah um and uh but it only happened because you know it was me and three behavioral science researchers working as a team um and they will point out that my contribution although i was involved throughout the whole time but the the biggest contribution that I made was the first one, which is like just bringing this idea. Um, and so this was yeah. not, a, uh, you know, this thing that I think of is so fundamental to engineering, which is like when we change things from how they are to how we want them to be, you know, that's, that's what engineers do. Um, they had never kind of framed uh, decision making in, in that way. And so that was kind of, uh, that was the contribution that, you know, that, led this very applied view of a very led to a very basic uh research question yeah it's all it's all fascinating very very interesting so speaking of your book subtraction so interdisciplinary research where uh where exactly did the idea of this bias uh subtraction come from what what well, sparked i don't that? I've, I'd always been interested in it, um, like kind of minimalist design, uh, but just a passing interest. And the thing that the biggest breakthrough came, I was playing Legos with my son, who was three at the time, and it was the Duplo Legos, and we were building a bridge, and the support columns were different levels. And so I turned around behind me to add a block to the shorter column. And by the time I had turned back around, he had removed a block from the longer column. And so it gave me this really like vivid tangible evidence of, of the situation that I was interested in. So the situation being not a bridge or anything, just whenever we're trying to change something from how it is to how we want it to be. In this case, it was from an unlevel bridge to a level bridge. Um, then why is it, and you know, or is it at the time, is it that we think to add before we think to subtract? So what I had done in that moment was think to add a block and I would have added the block and moved on without ever considering taking away if my son hadn't removed the block. And, um, you know, that what happened there really matched up with, you can fast forward over all the tons, tens of thousands of hours of research that we did to show that, um, you know, what is basically happening is that when we, you know, when we, Think about this bridge or when we think about our calendars or even when we think about the ideas that are in our head or a piece of writing our first thought tends to be what can i add and um you know that's not necessarily a problem we we order our thoughts and you know your listeners will be familiar with all these heuristics and, and biases i mean that's where they they're all over the place um and but then the problem becomes we think what can we add and we add and move on without even considering a superior subtractive alternative. Um, and so that is the, the the Lego epiphany is where the research kind of started. Definitely. Yeah, what I find most fascinating about all of this is you did mention like the minimalism and minimalism. Yeah. Uh, minimalism movement, excuse me, I'm fumbling over my words, uh, no, isn't something something new. I mean, that's been around for a couple of decades now. And I'm just so shocked that nobody kind of thought about this before, I suppose, that this, yeah. uh, that this bias wasn't actually thought about or conceived prior to, you know, you coming across it and then studying it with the other behavioral, um, behavioral scientists, just because it is against the norm. I mean, we are particularly here in the United States, so materialistic, the accumulation of things, et cetera, but just the moving towards something, uh, or excuse me, moving towards less. Yeah. It's just, I it's think just it, interesting to me. <laughs> it is, I felt the same way. And I've got emails to like some of my favorite behavioral science collaborators. I'm like, trying to explain to them what I'm thinking and saying mm -hmm. like, surely somebody has done this. Uh, and, <laughs> but the good thing about the bridge, um, so the bridge was helpful in my thinking, but also I could take it around and give it to people. So Gabe Adams, who's the, one of the authors on this paper and a, a good friend and, you know, just brilliant behavioral scientist. Uh, I, I had been talking to her about this, like what I thought was this. And, but then I brought the bridge to her office and I said, okay, try and do this task. And she added like I had done. And then I showed her what my son had done. And she says, oh, so what you're thinking about is why don't we 
subtract as a way to improve things. And so um, it, it, it really does become important in terms of how you, how you frame this, because that subtracting as a way to improve is what, what makes it new, right? I mean, people have studied, you know, Kahneman and Tversky, for example, studied loss aversion, you know, that's, yeah. people are twice as disappointed to lose something as they are to gain something of the same value. And so um, this is totally different than that, what we're talking about, but it's, uh, but what part of what makes it different is when you say, okay, this is a case of subtracting to try to make something better, which of course is a possibility, but I think it's part of the reason that we overlook it. Yeah, it's all, it's all very interesting. And you know, the default mode of operation for a lot of people, like you said, is, yeah. is to add things. And I am just, so, you know, when you look at all of these cognitive biases, the heuristics, these developed over, you know, eons of evolution, and they had some sort of advantage for mm -hmm. people. Uh, there had to be some sort of advantage just due to natural selection. That's how, that's how natural selection works. You have you have these mutations and then the mutations that are desirable get passed on to future generations because they're advantageous to the environment. So I've just been mulling this over. And I also, you talk about this in your book because you have an entire chapter developed to kind of like the biological origins of it, of this uh, addition bias. And I'm just curious if we could talk about that a little bit because I mean, you definitely see that in society. Uh, yeah. You know, I had mentioned earlier, like the accumulation of things, uh, very- yeah very much as you know you're here in the united states you know that like the american kind of way of life is to accumulate stuff and you know that's been kind of sold to us in the advent of capitalism you know a little over 100 years ago as the, as what our default default mode of operation should be but i think a lot of people naturally kind of fall into that just accumulating things yeah uh, for, and also too when you talk about the accumulation of stuff that demonstrates social status as well to a degree so how does that impact mate selection things of that nature so i just let's go ahead and explore that for a little bit yeah i mean and since we're going back in biology i mean i think we don't have any evidence that um we we did test some german and japanese participants and there they did the same basic thing in terms of neglecting subtraction so i i imagine there's probably some more nuanced differences across cultures but this is not just an american thing um is from what we can tell. And, and as we go back in biology, of course, this is biology that everybody shares, not just Americans. So um, okay. uh, obviously there's, and, and you know this, of course, I'm just clarifying that the, uh, the, the biggest kind of biological, not the biggest, the one that comes to mind first in biology is just our desire to acquire food, right? I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's certainly something that's helped us pass down our genes is to eat when food is presented, also to stockpile food. Uh, like pack rats do this. And so that, that explains kind of hoarding behavior in our cabinets and things like that. Um, the, the more surprising one for me anyway, was this desire to display competence. And I had known that that was like this kind of fundamental thing that we like to do, which is basically show that we can be effective at interacting with the world and feel like we're effective at interacting with the world. Um, but the the classic example there is the bowerbirds building their nests uh, and so those the male bowerbirds will build, build these ceremonial nests and then the female bowerbirds will go around and, and look at the nests and decide who to mate with based on those nests and then the female bowerbirds go and build their own nest to actually provide shelter for the young so the function of these male produced nests is not to um, provide shelter that's not the evolutionary function. The evolutionary function is to show that this male, that the female is deciding whether or not to mate with, is effective at interacting with the world. And so you could see, I don't know, for me, when I think about the times that I kind of thoughtlessly add, it's definitely, you know, it's not to impress mates necessarily, but it's to show, show off that I'm doing something. Um, so yeah. the same kind of, oh, you've got this stuff in your, you've got a nice house, you've got a, um, we just build a tree fort for our kid. I think, you know, hopefully we just did that to provide joy to our kid, but you know, that's an additive thing, but also the, a lot of the adding we do to our social calendars, right. The busyness and the, you know, I attend often when I attend a meeting, it's not because I actually think the meeting is valuable, but I want to show to my coworkers that I'm competent. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and so, so that that competence is a very like biological thing that that we all share, and um, 
you know, not just building things, but successful, successful completion of tasks can be one way to display competence. Um, I don't know. Did you have any other biological ones that you thought of? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I really was digging into the, and you know, this is, this is, I'm we're just engaging in speculation here. I, like you said, yeah. there's, I don't think there's a whole lot of studies available on this yet. I'm really, really hoping that they get to the, you know, instead of just kind of doing guesswork and talking about proximate causes, kind of get to the ultimate and figure out exactly why it is that this developed. But I mean, in particular, I was just thinking about the accumulation of things and then the materialism and then how we use that to demonstrate social status as well mm -hmm. as, and how social status impacts mate selection yeah, uh, and how that would be selected over the years uh, through, you know, again, through the eons, through evolution and be a desirable heuristic to pass on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you were talking about earlier with the stockpiling food, I, I kept going back to that to demonstrate social status because with, you know, today we use money, obviously, to kind of to help to help us demonstrate social status, but the the stockpiling of food, obviously, food you need food. That's a very very important resource. And if you had a lot of food in our hunter gatherer societies or even the farming societies of the past, that would demonstrate a very a much higher social status. And therefore, you know, maybe you had this quirk, the addition bias uh, that was inherent or was stronger with you, and then to the women of the society, that would be more desirable because you are more capable of caring for offspring and caring for them because you have access to more resources. So therefore you'd be more inclined to pass on that genetic quirk, uh, the addition bias. Yeah. So that's what, that's kind of where I was, I was thinking about it. Yeah. And I think the, you know, of course, with all of these heuristics and biases, there's no single, you know, where we, there's the biological forces, there's cultural forces, there's more recent like social economic forces. Um, and, you know, cultural evolution, as you know, kind of works the same way as biological evolution, except for much faster. And so after we've had the, you know, the advent of civilization, we're not necessarily like changing our genes, but we're changing the way society behaves. And certainly material culture, um, that was one of the things I had to learn to write the book was how um, material culture came about basically as a way to help people who were used to living in groups of 25, where you could memorize everything about everybody to living in these larger groups. And it's like, okay, now I can make a shorthand decision based on what that person is wearing. I can make some assumptions about who they are. And then the bigger the groups got, the more materials you needed, right, to have those separations. And certainly I don't think all of the material culture today can be explained by that very practical use for it, but you could see how that kind of adding to separate groups could kind of contribute to the adding that we're seeing today. And then of course, you mentioned the advent of capitalism and um, you know, this kind of the thing, the way I separated in the book is uh, not separate it, but a, a moment in time is post-World War II when all of the countries are starting to focus on growth as a, you know, this is a good thing for society. And in general, growth has been a good thing for society. We haven't had a World War III, but um, certainly growth is a very additive metric, right? If you add a prison, which is like adding a bad thing, you're, you're contributing to GDP. Um, and those are socioeconomic forces that are maybe contributing to adding these days. Um, I would say, uh, you know, to kind of the last thing I would say on the biological point is as you're describing evolution, right? Evolution is a beautiful model of how we could think about adding and subtracting, right? They're complementary ways to, to make change. And so evolution has these adaptations and then it has selections and without the subtractive selections, it wouldn't move forward, but you also need the, the additive adaptations. Yeah, that's a really interesting observation that you're just making there. I didn't think of it as that way, but yeah, you have the random mutations, so the additions, but then yeah. when they're not advantageous, then you have the subtractions because then they are eliminated essentially because they don't pass on the genetics to the next generation. Yeah. So that, another yeah, interesting, yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> another interesting thing we'll hear as we talk about the cultural one, I mean, 
when you're moving from hunter-gatherer societies to the types of societies that we live in today, I mean, there's a lot of adding that's needed, right? <laughs> you know, so to when you encounter a, an open spot that would be a good place for a city to build the city, most of the decisions are adding. Um, and so there's also a cultural argument where like a lot of the subtractions that are available to us today, whether it's to remove a, a highway that used to serve a city well and now is like separating two neighborhoods or something, um, or whether it's to remove stuff from our overbooked work schedules. I mean, those are new opportunities that we haven't, you know, maybe in the past culturally, it has been advantageous to, to add even more so than it is today. And maybe that's why we're kind of, it's still our, or still our first instinct to, to think of that. Yeah, I, you know, I think in today's society, because things just appear to be speeding up. Uh, mm -hmm. Like we were moving on this exponential trajectory and eventually, you know, if you keep adding, 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 you are just going to burn yourself out. So yeah. kind of learning this subtract, how to subtract, but to do it strategically, right? You can't just cut everything out, but to right. strategically subtract from your life could be very, very beneficial. And I, uh, I think about this, there was this work done by a, a physicist, his name's Geoffrey West. Uh, he yeah. wrote a book on it, Scale. Are you familiar? He did. He mm -hmm. was a particle physicist, and he did work out of the Complexity Institute in Santa Fe. And his work on scaling and just how human society moves, particularly like in cities and things of that nature, yeah. and just the accumulation of things, but like it just moving on this exponential trajectory and speeding up, and just how yeah. how subtraction could be very, very beneficial to modern society, and particularly moving forward. Again, strategic subtraction, though. So. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I think um, the the even more daunting thing is um, the fact that when we're under cognitive load, we're even more likely to add, right? So it's like all of these other heuristics. I mean, they're like a decision making a decision making shortcut. It's not that we can't subtract; it's just that we don't slow down and, and think about it. But then the very behavior <laughs> that this bias is causing, which is to think adding first, is making us even more likely to succumb to the bias, right? Because we make ourselves yeah. busier and busier and busier. We have less and less time to think, and that makes us less and less likely to subtract. So somehow we've got to break that cycle. No, absolutely. I mean, everybody is super overloaded. And, you know, you, particularly when it comes to like information consumption, you, know, you think about social media platforms and how it's just boom, 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 boom. You know, it's a 140 character tweet or whatever it is, like a short tweet, maybe a 200 character tweet. I, I, don't recall the actual length but you know it's just like little snippets of information but it's like you know it's like boom 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 you think about like a uh, a social media news feed and it's just like you're just getting hammered with news information all the time uh people are getting overloaded they're constantly connected um to each other to work and then like they're always in their their system what is it system one the you know, automatic Kahneman, yeah. yeah, the automatic ones, the system mm -hmm. one versus system two. So they're just constantly operating in this systems one thinking where it's the automatic, the more primitive, where it's just re being responsive and reflexive. Uh, and you're not going to engage any of your met metacognitive skills or meta uh, met metacognition in general, just because of how we have society organized these days. So it's, yeah. it's just such an important skill in general to kind of slow down and definitely learn how to subtract. I mean, so many people have limited their social media interaction uh, just because they can become overwhelmed. It has negative mm -hmm. uh, mental health implications, things of that nature, but uh, very, very interesting. I would uh, say that um, it's not, I think we often, yeah, this has been going on for a long time. So Lao Tzu, you know, he has this great quote and he's from two and a half millennia ago. And so the, this quote is attributed to him that, you know, to add, to gain knowledge, add things every day, to gain wisdom, yeah. subtract things every day. And I mean, and then if you look in chapter eight of the book, I, it's the last chapter, I talk about, you know, subtracting in our ideas and information. And people have been talking about this as long as people have been talking about things and documenting it. It's like, oh man, we've got too much information. I mean, one of mm -hmm. the, uh, I forget who the philosopher is, but one of his, uh, I think it is Seneca, the one who wrote about like discursiveness. 
uh, anyway, I, I'm going to, I don't recall. Yeah. <laughs> try to make it, <laughs> make it perfect. But basically is like the second most problematic thing of all the problematic things was that too much reading was going to make people weak mentally because mm -hmm. now the stuff was on the page and you didn't have to remember everything. Um, so like we've always had a lot of information. We've always had this kind of, um, this challenge of how to uh how do we make use of of what we've got and certainly there's no argument that we've got more information than ever today but the fact that it, it's um it's been beneficial and you know people have been overlooking it for for a long time too in terms of okay well, how can you um how can you take things away from the information that you have to to make your life better and other people's lives better the one thought I just had, though, is so information has always been an issue, but I think that information has probably always been an issue, at least in the, or was an issue for the people in the past who were privileged enough to be able to be concerned about it and have access yeah. to it. Yeah, we have that with absolutely every like person on the planet now because of the advent of the Internet, like smart devices and things of that nature. So I'm glad on one hand that people have thought about it, you know, thousands of years ago, but uh, we have to get everyone else, I guess, up to speed at this point. <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I, I don't think they faced it a thousand years ago. The fact yeah. that Lao Tzu's quote still rings true two and a half millennia later is evidence that nobody's really figured it out. So um, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with you there. And a, a great point too about the, you know, this isn't a matter to be able to subtract things is a, is a privilege that we have, right? And um, we need to take advantage of it. So there was a chapter in the book where, and maybe it wasn't just a singular chapter and you, pro you probably talked about it at more than one point. I just don't recall specifically at the moment, but you bring up systemic racism. Yeah. And I'm really glad that you did because I don't think that it is something that is talked enough about. Uh, and I'm just curious as to why, how you became interested in this particular issue of systemic racism and why you felt it really important to talk about in your in your book. Yeah, I mean, I, I really tried in the book not to just talk about stuff that I think is important. Um, and so like the, the practical thing is in the book, I was trying to balance examples that were physical, social, and in our heads ideas, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then also uh, balance across different kinds of things that might make the world, you know, so like climate change and so, and systemic racism all the way down to kind of everyday individual challenges, like, you know, your, your schedule's overloaded. So there was a very like practical reason for including it, which is like, okay, this will illustrate that subtracting is beneficial in these social systems. Um, and then of course, I mean, for me, I just think that that is, um, I don't know, we talk about subtracting ideas, right? And one of the things that my mind has sharpened on over the last 10 years, I think is, you know, uh, and I, I think all, for me, this stuff's all on a continuum, but like kind of away from this notion of every person kind of forges their own opportunity more towards a notion of, hey, the, the systems that we're a part of are incredibly important. And, um, and then certainly with the, the pandemic, I mean, just throwing even more evidence in our faces that, you know, if black people are three times more likely to die from COVID. It's like, well, some, that's not a, <laughs> that's not their fault. That's a, that's something mm -hmm. with the system. So there was that fact that it was, you know, uh, a perfect example, I think for big social problems where subtracting can help. Then there was the I think this is an important thing for the world. And then there was the, um, you know, timeliness of it or not, because I think it's always timely, right? It was just that uh, our awareness of it was was heightened um, and my awareness of it was heightened uh, in the last decade or so. Yeah, absolutely. And there's been a lot of events um, that has really made the world aware of the issue of systemic racism in the United States. So. Yeah, and you know, prior to the pandemic, 2000, uh, 2020, I mean, it's always been an issue. I mean, we've had right. this for decades, and 
it has come up it, it's like moves in waves <laughs> it seems like and the problem yeah. unfortunately is still persisting getting better um at least maybe maybe that's wishful thinking but i think from the evidence it is improving over time it's just that it's still a problem yeah uh, in particular one of the examples i know that you talked about in the book was uh, was i i think it was apartheid yeah apartheid, apartheid. in uh, apartheid in uh in south africa mm -hmm. and how i think you the way that you phrased it was that you know getting rid of it was a subtraction or something of that nature am i recalling yeah, the it big, correctly the yeah the big subtraction there was so apartheid in south africa obviously an example of systemic racism um and you know a very clear example and an old example um and there is this guy i talk about in the book leo robinson uh so that was the other thing I was trying to do in the book was show that individuals can have an impact on uh, on these larger situations. And so Leo Robinson was a dock worker in California who he didn't have a college education. He had gone straight into the military. He had, um, and uh, then when he became a dock worker, he started getting more interested in social uh, issues and educated himself and found, you know, learned that apartheid was happening and learned how, you know, unloading South African vessels was contributing to this apartheid system because you're essentially propping up the economic system in mm -hmm. South Africa. And the, the, the main subtraction that they did, though, was divesting. So um, that one of the themes that's common in the book is like, okay, people try to address this problem and they, at first they're just adding stuff to it. Right. So if you're trying to take down the apartheid system by throwing in an, uh, a rogue army to take out apartheid in South Africa, that's like adding to the system. And, and, you know, people were doing that and I'm not saying they shouldn't have been doing it, but that's an additive solution. Um, even adding on the, the sanctions was kind of a, an additive solution. So we're going to make these sanctions against South Africa. But the divestment was when people said, well, look, we've got money invested in this thing that we're fighting against. Why don't we pull our money out of South Africa? And so like um, Robinson was, uh, Leo Robinson was a dock worker in Oakland. Um, one of the things that kind of came about after their protests on the docks, not unloading the cargo was... Uh, the University of California system divested from South Africa. And, you know, so now you're talking about billions of dollars. It was University of California, then I think University of Wisconsin or Michigan. And then, you know, so universities started doing it and then um, companies started doing it. And you've got all this money being pulled out of the apartheid system. And that was kind of the, the final straw. And it's, it seems like such an obvious thing, right? Here's this thing that you're fighting against, which is this bad system and still our instinct is not to take away the the power of the bad system it's to keep adding to fight it um and and so divestment kind of worked for apartheid it also comes through when you're talking about addressing climate change right it's like you can mm -hmm. throw solar panels on your roof but you can also stop investing in fossil fuel companies that are saying hey we're just going to keep pulling the these fossil fuels out of the ground we don't care what the emissions are going to be um so anyway, the, the divestment was the subtractive message there. Um, and I think, you know, one last thing I'll say on this is that there's a point here that's um, made by a lot of people. One of the most famously is uh, Kurt Lewin, uh, who's like kind of the father of social psychology. And he had this, um, I say theory, but in a scientific sense, it's not like just his guess. It's, you know, that, that behavior of individuals are, is shaped by forces, right? The forces mm -hmm. that are going on around them. And there are forces moving in the, moving you in the direction that you want the behavior to go. And there are forces kind of working against you. And, and he said that there's two ways to change the behavior, right? One is to add more forces kind of helping you along. And the other is to subtract some of these forces that are working against you. And of course we should consider all of our options, but Lewin's point was that often subtracting these forces that are working against you is the better way to make change in the system because it actually relieves tension, right? So if you leave that force that's working against you in the system, in this case, the, the, funding the businesses in South Africa, that's a force working against you. If you leave that force mm -hmm. in the system and then you try to fight it with a, you know, military intervention or even some other kind of economic intervention, it, 
you've added tension to the system. There's more tension there. Um, whereas if you take out that force, you've kind of simplified the system and helped you get to the goal better. So um, anyway, that, <laughs> that was a long-winded no, answer no, no. to yeah, that's... why I included the systemic racism. I also, yeah, so anyway. Yeah, what I was going to say, that's, uh, I really like the force analogy that you just brought up. And then all of a mm -hmm. sudden I have like free body diagrams coming to mind uh, from yeah, physics. And I'm thinking yeah. about if you can, to simplify a free body diagram, you have less forces in it and it makes the problem easier. Mm -hmm. uh, and you said less tension. So, you know, there's certain scenarios you have two competing forces uh, and perhaps one force is greater than the other. Yeah, you can and, just add. In that case, then you have then you have some sort of movement, but it wouldn't be the same type of movement that you would have if you didn't have the one competing force. So therefore yeah. you would, you know, you would have a greater acceleration or something of that nature. So for example, you know, going back to the divestment, you are removing this force out of the system. And therefore you then you have greater movement versus yeah. not having any movement before. So that's a yeah, really that's a great that's it's a really interesting analogy. <laughs> I'm, I'm embarrassed I didn't use it in the book, given my engineering background and the amount of time I spent doing those free body diagrams, but it's exactly the same, yeah. right? It's like, yeah. You, yeah. And that's, I mean, if you now I'm, I, I didn't think of it before, but when you said it, and I'm now I'm thinking of like the sketches in Lewin's book look almost exactly like engineering free body diagrams. And here's another um, kind of piece of another reason why these disciplines need to over, inter, uh, overlap right <laughs> because you know engineers have spent a lot of time thinking about forces and fields and and how how the how the different forces might cancel each other out or not and now that behavioral scientists are are more and more kind of applying this science to try to make the world a better place i think engineers can contribute there um in, to uh to bring some of the things you've learned we've learned from studying physics and chemistry and some of these other sciences yeah absolutely there's just so much room for progress there. Again, yeah. we were talking about it earlier with the interdisciplinary stuff. I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. And I know personally that my traditional upbringing is physics, um, like from a, a graduate, graduate school on standpoint, I, I have an interesting background where I, I was changing majors. At one point I was an engineer and then, I, then uh -huh. I got a degree in geology and then I switched into physics. And so I'm one of those people who's kind of like all over the place. Cause I'm like, I'm just interested in everything. Right. <laughs> so I can, I, I definitely appreciate the trying to think about problems from a different field, trying to mm -hmm. go in and just seeing how they can be merged. And yeah, I, the, again, going back to what we were just talking about, the free body diagrams and then the behavioral, was it, was the gentleman a behavioral scientist that you mentioned? And he's Kurt Lewin. This, yeah. yeah. L-E-W-I-N. You should okay. check him out. Like if you'd like, no, yeah, yeah. It's on, as a historian of science, you would, uh, you would enjoy reading some of his stuff. He's a fascinating guy. He moved from, um, he, I think he was born in Poland, moved to Germany, then had to leave Germany because Hitler came to power and okay. then spent a long time in the U.S. But he was always, I mean, we often see social psychology is this thing that's kind of detached from implications for society right they spend a lot of time doing experiments and labs and stuff and uh i mean there's obviously implications but but lewin was very much like how do we use this to make the world better for people mm -hmm. I mean, he's very applied in the way that he um the way that he used it all right. Yeah, I definitely have to do some more reading on him then. Yeah, I think you, it was mentioned in the book and then uh, briefly, but um, yeah, I definitely have to do some more reading on his work because I am super intrigued by the way that he was describing social interactions and using mm -hmm. uh, physics terms as well. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so, okay, so we briefly talked about, it was mentioned when we were uh, discussing systemic racism here, uh, is global warming. So yeah global warming and i know you mentioned that you have work you have done work with sustainability and uh in that in that area but how can subtraction be beneficial to basically you know treating or <laughs> creating solutions for arguably the greatest threat to humanity this century so yeah i mean <laughs> well, i think yeah. you know in climate change and all of these uh there's the famous science I think it was the, in science uh, that these planetary tipping points, right? And these are the points yes. like kind of beyond which there's no return. And 
a number of them we've exceeded. We're past the planetary tipping point and, you know, climate change. I don't, we haven't exceeded the tipping point yet, but we're darn close. And, uh, and, you know, so, you know, just philosophically, this added, this mindset that the only way to solve problems or this, like, not, not mindset, but the, the, this tendency to try to solve problems by adding could be contributing to all of these issues. Right. And uh, mm. so, Again, I, I don't. I think there's like a lot of causal links there that you can't make perfect uh, scientific evidence for every connection. But for me, like a, a big root of our unsustainability is thinking that adding is the best way, or the thinking of adding first and then not considering subtraction as a way to make things better. Um, more, you know, getting a little more down to earth is. Uh, uh, when you're talking about climate change, the the very um, the problem is literally that there's more CO2 in the atmosphere than scientists think is safe to to be there, um, and so we've got to figure out how to subtract some of it. I think the uh, and for a long time, I know people are like the re most recent IPCC report, for example, is paying a lot of attention to you know negative emissions strategies, but for a really long time, most of our attention as it related to climate change was kind of just adding less, right? So like shooting fewer emissions into the atmosphere. And now in part, because we don't really have a choice we're we're forced to consider, okay, how do we pull emissions out of the atmosphere? And I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think it's something we need to do. And if you look at climate engineering strategies, and I think we should be looking at all of these climate engineering strategies too, but going back to Kurt Lewin's point for social situations where like removing things is the better way to make change because it relieves tension. I think it's uh, all else being equal. It's probably better to pull CO2 out of the atmosphere than it is to shoot space mirrors up into the sky to reflect the sunlight. Right. Because mm -hmm. with the pulling CO2 out, at least we're going towards a planetary situation that we know a little bit about, whereas the other one, you're kind of introducing another unpredictable thing into a system that we've changed without even trying to change. Uh, so that's, that's the down to earth example is space mirrors. And then um, the, uh, and then I think, you know, even as it goes to divestment, that's kind of how I wrap tie it all together in the book is like the same divestment that it worked with apartheid in Desmond Tutu, one of the leaders in the South African, um, uh, fight for freedom is now advocating for divestment um, to help with with climate change. And so I think that, again, that's not the whole solution, but it certainly seems to make sense if we're, you know, spending all this time and thought and money on trying to solve this huge issue, uh, maybe we should stop investing in the thing that's causing the issue. <laughs> and so that's a, a very kind of um, straightforward subtraction that we might be able to pull off. Yeah, indeed. I think one of the things, so obviously divestment works and it makes me a little bit sad though, because you are essentially, society has to admit that the only reason why people are changing uh, their strategies then is because of money. And yeah. um, I just, sometimes it's uh, a little, little hard to swallow that pill, um, but it's a sad kind of reality of just how our society operates, the kind of money the direction of how or where resources uh, accumulate, it's really, really important. So yeah. if you are able to take away resources from a particular industry, that industry is no longer going to exist anymore. And they're right. going to fight tooth and nail in order to preserve their own existence. So you have to figure out a way to deprive them of resources, essentially, uh, because they won't change of their own accord. Yeah, no, it's hard. It's it's yeah. it's certainly hard. Um, and sir, I uh, I mean, one thing I haven't mentioned yet, probably explicitly enough, is that it's not like subtracting is always the answer, right? It's mm -hmm. like this is fun. You know, just going back to the Lego bridge with my son, like this, these are complementary ways to make change: um, adding and subtracting. And the problem is not that subtracting is always right, and we never do it. The problem is that we systematically overlook it as a way to to make things better. And I don't, you know, I'm agnostic on what options people choose. I just want them to have the options or be considering the options. No, yeah, absolutely. Definitely subtraction isn't always going to be the answer. Right. Um, sometimes addition really is the best solution. However, if you're being biased towards addition, 
all the time, then you're overlooking, perhaps overlooking the optimal play. And I think you talk about that when you were actually conducting your studies. You mentioned that in the beginning of your book where, you know, you give the people, you set up these idealized, idealized situations. It was like a grid or something of that nature. Yeah. And the optimal play was subtraction, but the vast, vast majority of people still added. Right. And it was just, you know, there was no way, once you realized, once you noticed the subtractive option in those grids, for example, it was just inarguably better. So it was just really good evidence that the, the problem wasn't that people were evaluating it and then saying, oh, no, I don't want to do it. The problem was they weren't even evaluating it as an option in the first place. Yeah, just completely overlooking the solution. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's just so interesting and fascinating. All, and all of that. But um, all right. So moving on to real quick, I wanted to touch on how like the average person could incorporate subtraction, I suppose, into their life. And we kind of briefly mentioned that a little bit when you're talking about, you know, subtracting things out of your schedule, um, minimalism in general, um, et cetera. Because we've touched on kind of like these bigger societal type issues, you know, that we talked about yeah. the systemic racism and then the global warming and how subtraction can be used through the divestment strategies and uh, other things, et cetera. So I'm just curious, is like, what are your thoughts on the average person incorporating this into their everyday life and using it to improve it, essentially, to make it better? Right, right. The... Uh, I mean, the biggest thing is just, you know, stop overlooking it, right? And that's easier said than done, as we found out. Um, I think one thing you could do right after listening to this um, podcast might be to think about the places where you could give yourselves reminders to subtract. I mean, one of the things we did in our experiments was give people reminders that, hey, you can add or subtract. And we gave them the reminder, they subtracted more, which is like, okay, of course, people are going to do this more when they are reminded of it, but they didn't add more. And so for our experiments, it showed that the adding reminder was redundant with what they were already thinking, and the subtracting reminder brought new ideas to mind. Um, now, who cares about the experiments, taking that into your real life, if you can give yourself a reminder to take away at the moment, or to consider subtracting at the moment that you're making, you know, important decisions, that'll make you less likely to overlook it. Uh, an example is I have, when I do my to-do lists, I force myself to think about what I'm going to stop doing as well. Um, and again, I don't force myself to choose it, but at least I think about it. Um, and so that's an example where, you know, I have this practice in place where I, you know, for my time management, think about adding and subtracting. And uh, I don't know what everybody's, you know, kind of individual important decisions are, but you could think about where you would put those reminders and put those cues in your everyday life so that um, you are less likely to overlook subtraction. And then, I mean, the book is really written to help remedy this. I mean, that's, I, you asked about the systemic racism question. It was like, one of the things that I tried to do in the book was show this across a lot of situations so that people would say, oh, okay, yeah, this is where I do it. And then after reading the book or listening to the book, you know, I think you'd be better able to kind of um, use this in different areas in your life. It's, it's really hard to not, I think it's not really hard. It's impossible to, for somebody writing a book to prescribe, hey, here's how you should subtract. But if you can kind of give people this mental framework, then they're plenty smart enough to put it into practice in their own lives, however it's going to best suit them. So those would be my main recommendation. So write down this place that you can use the reminders and then, you know, listen to the book or, or read the book too, um, if, you've, if, you've, if you've got the time. Yeah, and just being aware of it to begin with. I know part of the-, the awareness yeah, is huge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the awareness is huge with any of the, and that's one of the things I kind of stress because, you know, there's mixed research on like cog cognitive bias mitigation yeah. uh, strategies. Uh, there are certain strategies that have shown to work and, uh, and they're highly specific to the particular bias that you're trying to mitigate. Right. But in general, it just seems like being aware of the cognitive biases and that you are just biased that even if, you know, even, you know, it's funny is one of the cognitive biases is having the bias that somehow you're not biased because you've studied <laughs> cognitive biases. Yeah. <laughs> you can like, uh, but in general, just being aware, just saying, Hey, I'm aware now of the addition bias or 
however you would like to refer to it, my proclivity to add things or to look at additive solutions over the subtractive solutions and to make sure that I'm looking at the subtractive uh, solutions. Yeah, and I think you know some of the research that uh, that shows that the biases there are some biases that are you know just knowing about them doesn't help and, and but those seem to be the biases where um it's not that you're not thinking of it it's that it's like emotionally hard to yeah to do something um in this bias the fundamental thing here is that you're not thinking about it and so i yeah. do think that that awareness should help no absolutely um yeah, and I, I just can't stop thinking about how it's related to loss aversion. There's got to be some sort of tie in there between these two biases. I, have, did you guys look at that at all? Oh, yeah. The relationship. I, I can't remember if that was in the, I can't remember if you talked about that in the book or not. Well, I so did there, I did talk about, about it in the book. Yeah, I don't, did, I mean, yeah. so again, this is an oversimplification for how we think and decide, but there's two, um, you know, loss aversion is I'm thinking about, how I'm going to feel if I lose this thing. Right. Yeah. It's like, so I don't want to get rid of the, you know, their classic experiment giving people coffee mugs and the people half the class gets a coffee mug. The people who have just been given a coffee mug are asked to evaluate how much asked to say how much they would sell it for. And then the people who ha don't have a coffee mug are asked to say how much they would buy one for. And the people who have a mug generally value it twice as much. So they're deliberately thinking about, okay, What's this thing worth to me? How much is it gonna be? How much is it, um, would I be willing to sell it for? So it's a very thoughtful process. And so I would say that ours is way, you know, before loss aversion comes into play because you're not even thinking about subtracting yet. Um, this yeah. is just considering the option in the first place. And that's the main fundamental distinction. The, um, the other, but the, I think loss aversion is really important to remember here because we didn't touch on it a lot in this conversation, but of course there's a lot of reasons why even after we do think of subtracting, we might not follow through with it. And loss aversion is at the loss aversion. Yeah. kind of at the top of that list is like, especially if we don't, I think it's really easy to fall into this trap of imagining that uh, a loss is a bad thing, right? One of the, and, and it, so if we don't remember that subtracting can be good, then we're fighting loss aversion. Uh, and so then there could be a, that could certainly help explain why we don't subtract in the real world. Yeah, I know that a lot of people in the real world are always fighting loss aversion, yeah. always. And I found yep. myself doing that before I was aware of loss aversion, even after being aware of loss aversion, I'm always asking myself, okay, do I continue down this path? Is the reason why I haven't changed yet because of loss aversion and like having to do kind of like this internal calculus. And I know for a lot of people, they stay in relationships that, you know, for far too long, or they stay in jobs for far too long, or they put off a major life decision because of loss aversion. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, loss aversion, status quo, um, even yeah. like Ikea status effect, quo. you know, yeah. sunk cost fallacy, all of those things are kind of you can see how they're working against uh, subtraction even after you think about it. That's true. Yeah, that's right. There's all these different other biases too. I, was, I think maybe more I was, con I, was uh, I was referring to the sunk cost, maybe the sunk cost bias or the sunk cost fallacy or something of that nature. But yeah, all of these, all of these kind of play into one another into you wanting to continue down the path that you're currently walking yeah. down. Uh, and then you're not subtracting when you need to be. You're not making yeah. a decision or cutting things out or something of that nature. Yeah, okay. Well, and All the right. interesting thing is that the path isn't neutral. That's the, like, right? So the status quo is actually continuing to add. <laughs> it's not just like doing okay. nothing. You okay. know what I mean? It's like, yeah, I yeah. you yep. kind of stack these two things together. So. Very interesting. It's all very interesting. But anyway, I, I just wanted to thank you so much, Lighty, for coming on to the podcast. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, your research on subtraction and growing what seems to be maybe an, an endless Rolodex of cognitive biases that the human, that the human mind has, uh, but contributing to that. that um, so thank you for your work. Thank you for the research. And again, fascinating conversation. Where can people connect with you? 
Um, I mean, the book's the best place. That's where all the good thoughts are. I'm on Twitter um, at Lydie Klotz. And then you can, I have a good Google name. So you can find my website and uh, whatever else I'm up to more recently, just with a quick Google search. So you, yeah, that's right. You do have a website and you can find yeah. some traction on there. You can find it on yeah. Amazon. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, you can get the book anywhere books are sold. And there's an Audible book uh, and Kindle and, you know, you can get it at your independent bookstores. Um, so support them. All right, fantastic. Uh, anyway, for those of you who are joining us today, thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, make sure to check out Lighty's work. Uh, you will find all of the information in the show notes. Uh, please feel free to share the episode, hit that like button, reach out with any sort of feedback. We're always happy to hear from you and uh, stay tuned for more great content coming soon. Take care.